Our Old Testament passage today picks up in Esther chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now, this is after the death of Haman. On that day, King Asherus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. I like that. The house of Haman went to Queen Esther. This man who was an enemy of the Jews, his entire assets of his home, all of his properties went to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. In other words, he had the right to sign for the king. Tremendous power. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, again, that's fascinating to me. The man that wanted to murder Mordecai, now Mordecai, has all of his assets transferred to him. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, she arose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agaite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, folks, you have to understand, Satan's hatred of the Jew has been long-standing. And if Satan could have wiped out the Jews, could he have wiped out the coming of Messiah? Maybe in his mind, but you know what? There are things in God's plan that nothing is allowed to stop. Now, I just want you to see that Hitler was not the first one, nor will he probably be the last one that wants to wipe out all the Jewish people. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. Remember, Mordecai now has the king's signet ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters mounted by couriers riding on swift horses, that were used of the king's surface, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were at every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On that day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, in the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. 
So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used at the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, and a great golden crown, and a fine ro a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. I like that. They had light and gladness and joy and honor. The Feast of Purim, every year when we're in Israel, almost every year that we're there, either the feast is coming or the feast occurs when we're there. And that's when everybody dresses up and all the little girls run around in the little crowns. They're celebrating this deliverance from God. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict was about to be carried out, on that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. God's reversals. This is a great sermon. God's reversals. And the Jews gained mastery over those that hated him. And the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And all the governors of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This is progress, folks. This is how life works. God doesn't give it to you all at once. But when you follow him and you serve him, you grow more and more. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha and Dalphan and Asphatha and Paratha and Adelia and Aridatha and Parmashtha and Arisai and Aridai and Vaisa, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadath, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the, queen said to que the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Queen Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were also in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and on the 14th and rested on the 15th, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day which they send food, gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Asherus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, casting lots, to crush and to destroy them. That's why called the Feast of Purim. They had cast pure. And when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. How often does Proverbs teach us that a man's ways come upon his own head? Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim would never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. If you go with us to Israel, you'll see them... This is when they dress up in costumes. Remember, sometimes Brother Eli dresses up as the Pink Panther, okay? These are some of the most beautiful days to, to go down into the, the market areas, the, the local market areas where we, we, Ben Yehuda is what we call it, or what they call it, Ben Yehuda. Go into Ben Yehuda in the evenings and the musicians are playing and people are dressed and they're passing out food. These are beautiful times. And when we're in Israel during the Feast of Purim, it is a beautiful time. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, then Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and was recorded in writing. Chapter 10, verse 1. King Asaras imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and of all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank, second in rank, to King Asherah, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his, of his people 
and he spoke peace to all of his people. Now there's, there's great truth for any of you who are involved in government, that you seek the welfare of the people and you speak peace to the people. You wanna know how to be a good politician? Seek the welfare of the people and speak peace to the people. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
chapter 13, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now look at that, the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. Men and angels. All right, so tongues would be the languages of men and the languages of angels. So when people tell me, well, you know, when you speak in tongues, you know, the devil doesn't understand it. Well, you know, he does understand the languages of men and he does understand the languages of angels. But he said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, <laughs> irritation. Just an irritation. It just doesn't fit, all right? If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and notice the alls, all faith, all knowledge, all mysteries, so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So power is not greater than love. Spiritual power is not greater than love. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So sacrifice is worthless without love. You know, there are some people, they think they're big givers, but they don't walk in love. And they wonder why they gain nothing. Now here is a giver who will never prosper, okay? There are givers that never prosper. Why do they never prosper? It says they gain nothing because sacrifice is worthless without love. And then he begins to describe what love is. What is love? Love is action, not feeling. Now, notice how he describes love. Love is patient. That's how you treat somebody. Love is kind. That's doing things that are beneficial to others. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Now, it'll present its opinion, but doesn't insist on it. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Look at all of this. This is all how you treat people. This is all about relationships. Love bears all things. Uh, endures is a better way to put it. Uh, a man said, Pastor Summer, how can I know that my wife really loves me? Well, I looked at him and I laughed in a minute. And I said, well, our wives put up with us. Our wives endure us. <laughs> and he looked at me and I said, now I'm partly joking. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Now look at that. All, 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 all. Love always hopes for people. Love always has hope. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you, you see the absolute best of people. 
and you see the absolute worst of people. And at some point in your life, you have to realize that if you really walk in love, you don't hope for their ruin, you hope for their best. Now let's look at verse 8. Love never ends. Wow. Love never ends. So, all right. There's no such thing as falling out of love. You fall out of a bed. You fall out of a bunk bed. But you don't fall out of love. Love never ends. You don't stop loving people. And, and this is one of the hardest things I have to, to teach leaders sometimes. You've got people that have really been ugly. You've got people that have really been nasty. You know, the real pimple people that Paul talks about and they pop on you. Well, you know, sometimes you deal with these people. And what people don't ever realize is that when you've really been a pastor to people, when you've really been a connect group to people, connect group leader to people, when you've really been there for people, you don't just stop loving them because they walk away from you. You, you love them for the rest of your life. There, there are people that have been uglier to me than anybody I could ever else imagine. And I still think about them oftentimes, several times a week. Some people, it wouldn't surprise me if I thought about them every day. Are they doing okay? Because you always, you always hope, you always believe. That's what love is all about. Love doesn't ever give up on people. So let's just put that in there. Love never gives up. Now, now sometimes, like the prodigal father, prodigal son's father, you got to let people go and walk away. But it doesn't mean that you ever stop loving them. So now, as for prophecies, spiritual gifts, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Okay, so these things will end. So, spiritual gifts... Spiritual gifts, tongues, knowledge, these things will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, what is the perfect? Now, if you talk to our Baptist brothers and sisters, and they're saved and they're going to heaven, we just disagree about the Holy Ghost, okay? Now, when that which is perfect is come, they say equals the Bible. But it does not equal the Bible. Okay, the Bible is still, you know, man listening to God and writing it down. And yes, we trust the word of God, but that's not what the scriptures are talking about. But they teach that this secessionism theology, this is what the Baptists teach, secessionism. They teach that the age of the apostles is over, that there are no more miracles, there are no more healings, there are more spiritual gifts, because now we have the Bible. But that's not what, that which is perfect. What it's actually being referred to is the second coming of Jesus. Not the rapture, but the second coming of Jesus. Because we know that during the Great Tribulation, the 144,000 evangelists from the, the Jewish people, and we know that the, the two great witnesses in the uh, temple courts, uh, we know that these people will definitely operate in the gifts of the Spirit and the supernatural. But at the second coming of Jesus, during that millennial reign, during that thousand years that Jesus rules and reigns on earth, and we rule and reign with him, um, all these partial things are, are passed away. And then Paul begins to apply it. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, when I grew up, 
I gave up childish ways. Now, notice the three childish ways. There's childish speaking. There's childish thinking. And there's childish logic. Now, childish speaking, thinking, and logic is like a child. It's selfish. It's self-centered, etc. He said, now, you know, when you when you grow up, you start thinking beyond yourself. You stop you stop reasoning like a child. You give up the childish ways of wanting to play and no responsibilities, and you give up the selfishness and the self-centeredness, and you begin to think about other people. And it's not that children are bad. I mean, please, we've all had our children. A child doesn't care that mama is sick. A child, mommy, I'm hungry, doesn't care that mama's been throwing up and sick. But as a child grows up, the child goes, you know what, mommy, you just lay here in the bed. Let me get a cool cloth for your head. Let me take care of you, mommy. And mommy, I'll cook the food for all of the rest of my siblings. Because you're growing out of childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So when we get to heaven... When all of this is done, all right, when, 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 all, when the perfect has come, we are going to know fully. We're going to understand the fullness of God. But we, we don't get it now. Right now, we just see through a mirror dimly. Now, this is why you often hear me say that we grow and that we learn. Uh, people have often asked me, Pastor Summerall, have you ever made mistakes in preaching? Legion. So why would you say legion? Because I preach so much. But you know what? We're always learning and we're always growing. When I look at the sermons I preached when I was first year pastor 40 years ago, oh my goodness, I, I, I did my best, but I was still learning. If Jesus tarries another 20 years and I'm still your pastor, I will look at the sermons I'm preaching now and I go, oh my goodness, that was so shallow. That was, that was so trivial. You're growing and you're learning. Right now we see through a mirror dimly, okay? But then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. The, the triangle, the trinity. I call this the, the trinity of ethics. The ethical trinity. Faith, hope, and love. These three abide. And the greatest of these is love. The greatest. What's greater, faith or love? Love. What's greater, hope or love? Love. The greatest of these is love. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. To close out with a little bit of wisdom. The Proverbs of Solomon, chapter 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a father glad, okay? A son who has some wisdom makes his father glad. But a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Young people, do you really want to make mom and dad glad? Have wisdom. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Now, there's a, there's a great truth. When people, when people gain money by doing things wrong, it does not profit. 
New Living Translation said, tainted wealth has no lasting value, but right living can save your life. All right. No lasting value. See, when God gives you prosperity, it just keeps growing. It keeps lasting. But you know, you, you look around and you, you can see businesses that have made their money by corruption. You can see preachers that have made their money by corruption. You can see uh, employees that have profited by their corruption. And you'll see there's no lasting value. But people that God has given it to, they just keep going. And I like how the Bible says from glory to glory. And the Hebrew word there for glory is wealth. One of the translations of that word glory is wealth. They keep going from wealth to wealth. They just, they just keep increasing. Why? Because they didn't get it the wrong way. Righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. This is his promise. You have no idea how often I prayed this promise for our members during COVID-19, especially those first three lockdown months. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. And I would come and I say, Lord, remember your promise. You said you will not let the righteous go hungry. And have you looked around? God's been faithful to his promise, brothers and sisters. Look at your life. Look at how God has provided. Yes, you had to work. Of course, we had to work. But look at how God provided. Your children ate. The Lord did not let the righteous go hungry. But he thwarts the craving of the wicked. All right, so the wicked crave. The wicked, they, they want nice things. But God said they're not going to have them. A slack hand causes poverty. So here is a cause of poverty. A slack hand. You know, it's amazing how many people want to come along and just say, well, you know, it's not the Lord's will to prosper me. Yeah, it is. You just got to get off your butt and stop watching Eat Bula Gun, stop playing your video games and get to work. Okay. A slack hand causes poverty. This is a cause. A lazy person. This causes poverty. You, you can take a young man born in a wealthy family and because he's lazy and he wants to sit around and watch Eat Bulaga and play his video games and surf the internet, you know what? He's going to be poor. I don't care what profession he's in. He's going to be poor. But, but our family is wealthy and he'll have an inheritance, but it will dissipate because what causes poverty is in him. When poverty is in a person's life, it doesn't matter how much you give them. They will be poor eventually. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Wow. Hard work makes rich. A diligent person, that's, that's hard work and focus, okay? A diligent person is not just hard work, it's, it's focused hard work. It's, it's getting my job done. That makes a person rich. Now, this promise is true even during COVID-19, all right? In the middle of COVID-19, if we will work hard, God will make it rich. God will bless the work of our hands. So now notice, remember, the promise is to bless the work of our hands. Now, when people teach you prosperity from the standpoint of just sowing, that, that's not true. 
There has to be a lifestyle that goes with that. Yes, sowing seed is a part of it. Yes, tithing is a part of it. But hard work is also a part of it. Now notice, the promise is that God will bless the work of our hands. If we have a, a slack hand, we're going to be poor. If we have a diligent hand, we'll be made rich. There's a lot of work for God to bless. He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. You've often heard me say harvest is the hardest working time of an agricultural cycle. The Bible teaches us that sowing seed is like an agricultural cycle. God graciously gives us seed to sow. We sow that seed. We pray for the watering of the Holy Spirit upon that seed. But then there comes a time when it's, it's harvest time. And harvest time is not God just filling up your bank account. Harvest time is, wow, there's a lot of work to do right now. My, my, my pastor friend Claude in, in Rockhampton, he and I were talking the other day. And he said, you know, business in, in some of these other cities in, in the nation is just dead. Adelaide, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, businesses are going bankrupt. He said, the businessmen in our church are making more money than ever before. He said, they can't keep up with the work. Now, listen to what he said to them. He said, and my advice to them was, don't add more staff, just work more hours. He said, make the money. This is the time to gather the money. And I thought, you know what? What wisdom he offered to his, to his businessmen. In a harvest season, don't go out and hire more people. Work harder yourself. Ah. Harvest season is a season of hard work. And when someone sleeps in the harvest season, it's all out there. And then they say, why didn't God prosper me? He did. He just wouldn't go out and do the work. Please, brothers and sisters, God has a harvest for you. But we have to be willing to work hard. The diligent hand makes rich. Amen. All right, we'll see you tonight, 7 o'clock sharp.